Hello and welcome along to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, Grosvenor UK and Ireland's Director of Climate Positive Solutions, Andy Hay, explores how organisations and individuals across the built environment value chain have to collaborate for a net zero London. Heineken's Global Head of Design, Mark Van Eterson, gives us a glimpse of the sustainable bars of the future. And we hear from two representatives of the newly launched Net Zero Pubs and Bars initiative. Yes, a very warm welcome to you all on this August day. I was going to say sunny August day, but very grim outside my window personally. Um, And a thank you all for listening and taking the time to tune into this episode of Sustainable Business Covered. I'm Edie's Senior Reporter and Podcast Secretary, Sarah George, and I'm joined in our virtual podcast studio by our content editor, Matt Mace, and potentially podcast assistant, Wally the Dog. He he was here and then he heard a pigeon outside, so he's now run outside to to scare that off. Um, so if you hear barking, it's just him chasing birds. I see he's got prior engagements, as yeah. has my own meeting assistant, Eva the cat, who has been sat on my office desk all day, but given me yeah the grace to go and go and sit on the bed instead. <laughs> um, Matt, aside from from puppy watching, how are you doing? How have you been? Yes, uh, really well, thank you. Um, it's an exciting time at Egypt at the moment. We're discussing kind of future plans around uh, around COP, around Mission Possible, which is our, our campaign. So it's um, it's really exciting to see that start to take shape. Yeah, it's annoying. It's one of these times where I want to tell everyone about all this exciting stuff, but really it's just a lot of planning behind the scenes. People say, oh, like you look at a duck and it looks very calm, but under the water it's like the paddling away and that's what it's been like for me so August is always a quieter month than than most obviously because of parliament being on recess and schools being on holiday Um, but there's no rest for the wicked and similarly no rest for anyone in the sustainability um, space as Matt mentioned our countdown to COP26 festival is in full swing Um, personally I'm delivering a action tracker on that so a regular series of features um, or recapping all the main announcements from UK policy, international policy, business and international events. And we've also been planning for some exciting stuff on September, so more later in this episode. Nonetheless, despite some of that that very busy stuff, I think summer is a nice time to take a step back and broaden the conversation and obviously as well a nice time for an ice cold beverage. So in this episode, we're looking at how the places we work and socialise at in cities, specifically with a focus on London, are approaching the challenges and opportunities of the net zero transition. I know a lot of us are still working from home, that's Matt and I included, but I'm going to set this podcast up so we're mimicking your typical Friday at work, meaning we're starting with our apartments and office buildings before moving over to the pubs and the bars. Our first interview is with Grosner UK and Ireland for kindly sponsoring our ongoing countdown to COP26 Festival of Content and Events, um, which I mentioned before that started in May and is running through to October. If you're not familiar with Grosner, it's a property developer with a major presence in London. Its historic London estate across Mayfair and Belgravia has more than 2,500 units, including apartments, offices and shops, and around one fifth of these properties are grade one or two listed. Needless to say, this presents a range of challenges and opportunities in transitioning to net zero. Today, we're going to explore how Grosner plans to do that with its director of climate positive solutions, Andy. We focus a lot on the practical actions that have taken place in-house to date and how engaging with suppliers, tenants and broader communities will be crucial to continued progress. So let's play that interview with Andy in full. Hello, Andy. It's such a delight to have you on our podcast today. How are you? Really good. Thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, not not too bad, although I do, I'm hoping by the time this airs, the weather will have got a bit better. But the weather is really getting me down this week. It's been drizzling here every single day. I don't know if it's been the same for you. I'm surprised you only say this week. It feels like <laughs> summer has come and gone and we're just stuck in a, in a cloud for eternity at the moment. But yes, we've got to stay positive. 
Of course. Um, whereabouts are, are you today? Um, so I'm based in London. Um, I live in um, southwest London. Obviously, our offices are kind of in Mayfair and in the heart of the Grosvenor estate. Mm. And, and are you going in sort of hybrid amount at a time, would you say? We're building back into it because obviously we are, you know, a lot of our roles are kind of essential to kind of managing our estate and our portfolio. There have been people in the office um, for the last few months. And as we build up to, you know, a return to business as usual, we are trying to increase that as well. Um, but it will be a hybrid model going forwards. Um, but it's just really nice being back in an office. Yeah. You don't re- you don't realise when you're stuck at home actually how nice it is to commute again and have the separation between work and home life. Um, so yeah, no, I'm I'm looking forward to going back in more. Yeah, a change of scenery is always good, and especially when it's that part of of London, always a delight to look at, to be honest. Um, I wanted to start, I guess, as we've just been ch- chatting off air, as as in that you've only been in your current role for a few months, I believe. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about it, and specifically what it means for a business like Grosvenor that has that has property, that has investments in in London and other cities to become climate positive. Yes, thank you. I mean, it's a really interesting question. I've yeah, I've only been in the role for five months, um, and I think definitions are actually really important um, on this collective race to zero um, because we really are at the kind of bleeding edge of the industry and defining what we are what we're all meaning and the actions that we're taking. I think is critical because we can't just rely on greenwashing. We actually have to be taking really bold and transformative action to kind of change the industries in which we operate and yes like you said we are targeting climate positive climate positivity it is my role but we also have steps on that journey so before i joined the business we um, launched our net zero carbon pathway um, in line with the kind of the bbp climate change commitment Um, and then since joining in in january we've now got our um, decarbonization pathway approved by a science-based target initiative so climate positivity is building upon all of that work for us and we actually take the science-based target initiative definition for climate positivity um, and that's what we're um, kind of working towards at the moment and that means that basically in addition to our approved net zero strategy we're going to continue to accelerate society's net zero transition beyond our value chain (laughs) that's the SBTI definition but what does that mean to us Um, that means that we're not going to wait until 2030 to begin offsetting that we're taking responsibility for our emissions earlier on our route to net zero. It also means we're looking at um, nature-based solutions as part of that journey and we're also attempting to tackle some of the kind of the hardest to abate sectors that our industry operates, so in particular kind of concrete and steel. So yes, absolute emission reductions is really important and achieving net zero is really important, but actually using the power of offsetting as a kind of a financial driver I think is also really key as well. Um, so this is super exciting uh, and it's new to us. Um, it's also, I think, new to most companies around the world. I mean, science-based target initiatives got, what, less than 1,500 um, approved SBTs. Um, so we're kind of at the bleeding edge of all of this. And as such, we're drafting on offsetting strategy now. Mm-hmm. And within that, it will include more of that definitions and the actions and how we're going to deliver our climate positive uh, aspiration. And we're hoping to launch that uh, by the end of this year. Great. Well, I'll be keeping an eye out for that. But I wanted to come back to what you put as I think you said it was like the foundation. So you can't go climate positive um, without going net zero and you can't go net zero without having the credible interim targets as well, as you mentioned. Um, And we're actually talking, I think, around about a year since the company launched Think Zero. So this net zero target um it's obviously been a pretty unique year <laughs> to say the least um so i'd love to hear about some of the first things that you and your team have been doing under that that strategy and what you've learned from that so far yeah so i think so was launched in december last year um and i would say it was an incredibly bold strategy and ambition it takes full responsibility for both our direct impacts, but also all of the impacts of our value chain. So our tenants, our supply chain, and embodied within the buildings in which we uh, we construct. Um, and then uses, as I said, that science-based target methodology to reduce our footprint by, by 52% um, before offsetting, 
which is really bold and ambitious and incredibly complex. So we are having to move incredibly swiftly to action to help deliver on some of those targets. Um, and to do that, I think the most important step was achieving buy-in with our employees. So we, as I said, launched in December. Come January, we were then going to each different department and presenting and engaging them around what Think Zero meant and specifically what it meant for their departments and kind of breaking down the targets in terms of what that department could help deliver. Um, Think Zero and our sustainability strategy has been written into the company's main uh, performance indicators. And then underneath that, we have team delivery indicators, which get reported on uh, uh, quarterly. And then underneath that, actually, everyone's um, personal um, performance as part of their annual reviews also includes a requirement to um, have net zero and our wider sustainability strategy embedded within it. So that means that net zero and well, our decarbonisation strategy, I should say, is actually linked to how people are, um, how, how their performance is monitored and how success is rewarded within the business. So that gives them like a really clear incentive to A, understand it and B, deliver it. Because we are a small sustainability team within the organisation, but we're quite powerful because the, the company is so engaged. So that was our first big step. And then we also have another, a couple of other kind of key areas. So one is our retrofit fund, which is mentioned in our um, in our net zero strategy. So we've ring-fenced £90 million to help retrofit our estate over the next, um, well, up until 2030. And in 2021, we've planned for over 200,000 square foot of our buildings to be retrofitted. So that's kind of a huge amount for year one to, you know, turn the key, get this up and running, go and do what we call building performance evaluations. So understand what systems and what parts of buildings and what buildings need to be retrofitted, get the keys, get permission from our tenants and go and deliver that. And we're on our way to achieving that target. And as part of that, we're being very targeted and specific around um, removing gas heating from our estate first. So we're targeting the biggest gas boilers and kind of the more polluting of our buildings in that regard. So that's probably one of the bolder actions we're taking in terms of delivering that retrofitting strategy. Um, and another one is green leases. So um, our green leases are available on our website if you want to have a look. Um, as a, just a summary of what we're expecting of people. But now every lease, uh, new lease that is written includes a green lease requirement. And that includes things such as um, the allowance for us to go in and do those building performance evaluations, understand the building and then work with those tenants to see how we can make improvements. It also commits to installing things like smart meters so we can better monitor and understand what's happening in those spaces to affect you know, operational changes, um, committing people to move to renewable energy, looking at their waste suppliers to increase recycling rates and remove like the impact of logistics. Um, and we've got a number of KPIs around green leases across the business, but one of them, which is uh, uh, trying to get 20% of our tenants to move over to green energy, we've already surpassed that and we're only halfway through the year. So we, we think we're on track to, to com comfortably beat that. Um, and I think the, the success of our green leases is that um, we're not just telling people to do stuff we're kind of joining asking them to join us on a journey so it's kind of shared collective benefit that you know we're not just saying give us all your data you know give us all your electricity consumption we're saying if you provide this to us we can help give you insights to show you how you can reduce your electricity bills so it's kind of that shared benefit um, which i think is working really well um, so yeah, those are just kind of two of the key areas that we're, we're looking at. But obviously, we're looking at our, our supply chain as well and engaging them around our supply chain charter too. And you know, our, our suppliers are a key part of the solution. And I, I want to come on to that in a moment, um, Andy, but I wanted to just recap there. Um, so you mentioned the need to replace gas boilers in retrofitting. So the million dollar question or million pound question at the moment seems to be for businesses. Well, what do I replace them with? Is it is it hydrogen? Is it some other gas? Is it heat pumps? Is it heat networks? So what what approaches is Grosner taking there? Well, it's not the million pound question. It's the 90 million pound <laughs> question for us. Um it's an interesting, it's a complex one. Where possible, we're looking at heat pumps. Um, heat pumps can't be installed as a like-for-like -like replacement. Typically, they have a lower um, operating temperature. They require much more thermally efficient spaces. 
So as part of our retrofit work, we don't look in isolation at, you know, just the the boiler. We look at it as part of the whole system. So can we go in and, you know, put double glazing in or put a secondary glazing? Can we improve the air tightness of the space as well and the system performance as well as just putting in a heat pump? Um, you also have limitations around plants and access and things like that. So we are looking at where we have existing um, ground source heat pumps. Can we connect them as part of more of a district scheme? But it's a really interesting, it's an incredibly challenging question. And also when you are moving gas, uh, yes, we're talking about boilers, but it's also really tricky to turn some retail tenants away from a gas cooker because they think it cooks their food better. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. We have um, some very high quality restaurants on our estate with um, induction hobs, but that is also a challenge as we move over to green leases and saying, you know, we're starting to refuse tenants to have um, gas cookers. And that is a, it's a challenge. I can imagine. And I'm sure that a lot of people listening are thinking about that and maybe weighing up what to do, especially in terms of the fact that policy is going to be changing very soon. Um, and we have done a podcast on low carbon heat recently, so I'm not going to stick on this topic for, for very long. I'm going to come on to something that you've mentioned a few times, which is that need for collaboration, buy-in and engagement. So we've spoken before to Tor Burrows, who works on sustainability and innovation, about that employee buy-in, um, those KPIs and that board engagement specifically. Um, and you've talked there about how you can engage people elsewhere in your value chain, so specifically tenants, to switch as well. But I'd love to hear a bit more about, as you mentioned, how you engage the supply chain, because as you mentioned, the definition of climate positivity is that you go beyond your own four walls and, and drive influence in, in places such as that. Yes, as I think I mentioned, our supply chain, or sorry, our value chain, so our suppliers and our tenants equates to 90% of our footprint. And our net zero strategy means we take full responsibility for their emissions. So we know that we cannot achieve our net zero ambitions without engaging with them. So everything that we do is around engagement and collaboration. You know, our impact is 6%. That's like, that's nothing in the general scheme of things. So um, we're trying to do a lot. And it is, you know, engagement is probably, it, it takes longer than turning off a turning off the lights um, and it isn't as brute force as a green lease um, or a supply chain charter mandate. Um, it's much more of a kind of a collaborative partnership and, and agreement with them. Saying that for our suppliers and our supply chain equates to well over 50% of our footprint, we do have a supply chain charter which has been in place for uh, a number of years now and it includes requirements of not just kind of our low carbon ambitions but you know the wider ambitions around say you know labor practices responsible sourcing etc um, and we're really targeting meaningful buy-in from our supply chain around that and obviously our net zero strategy as i said is, is embedded within this which means that we're kind of going from the top down and engaging first with our kind of key suppliers within our our supply chain so that either means we have very long-standing relationships with them or we have significant recurring spend or those that will have the greatest impact going forward so as part of our development pipeline we know that we need to target our main contractors um, because of the impact that they will be that they will play on our, our footprint going forwards so we're kind of actively going and engaging with those individuals to ensure that they sign up to the requirements within our charter um, but then we also have quite a, a a strong requirement for um, performance monitoring as well. So the requirement for them to feed in a number of data points, again, not just around our, our carbon performance, but to make sure that they are kind of delivering what they've said. Um, a lot more is coming down the pipe and will probably be coming out the back of our offsetting strategy next year in terms of how we're doing that. But that, you know, lots of people have supply chain charts. I think what makes ours special is that rather than just sending out a kind of a blanket email saying this is what we expect you to sign up to or having it as appendix as whatever whatever contract it's the relevant asset manager or partner um relationship manager who's kind of going and engaging with them at kind of a director level or, or a high level um you know we think about our um you know the impacts of say our legal supply chain or our development supply chain etc as a kind of a collective as much as those individual businesses as well so it means that we're thinking um quite coherently about the, the different impacts and the potential benefits of those different uh industry groups 
could have. So that's our supply chain. I think that's probably a rambling answer, but hopefully it gives you an understanding of we really are trying to take it seriously in terms of how we engage with them. And I would also say, you know, yes, we have a strong net zero strategy and we want to work with others that do, but equally we want to work with others that don't but want to. I think mm -hmm. that's really important is that we're not just saying, no, you're not, you're not net zero, so kind of get stuffed. We're saying we, we want to find people who want to join us on this journey. And I think that's um, particularly relevant when we talk about our tenants, because as part of these green lease agreements, when we've been going out to tenants and talking to them about it, we've had a lot more interest than we expected. Mm. Partly, like I said, because we're not mandating anything, we're asking for kind of a shared collaboration, we're offering something back as well. So they are really um, receptive to that. They see they're getting something out of it. Plus also, everyone knows we need to act now. It's a lot easier a sell in that regards to get people to realize there is a, a real requirement to do something. But loads of our tenants don't necessarily know what to do and how to do it. So they're actually looking for someone to come and support them on that. And again, I can't talk too much about it yet, but we are looking at uh, a number of kind of engagement um, and kind of collaboration initiatives with our tenants, which hopefully we'll be launching in the near future, and also kind of incentivization opportunities as well. Because a lot of this stuff is around getting them to begin a journey and then you can kind of let them run mm -hmm. rather than, um, you know, having to handhold the whole way through. So how do you remove the barriers for people to be, to be kind of beginning on these journeys? So we're doing a lot and a lot on it. And I think you'll see hopefully a lot from us um, either at the back end of this year or early next year as those start to get launched. Well, of course, we'll be keeping our eyes out for press releases and other pitches from from you guys. And I think that really is the thing, isn't it? That you can't just tell people what to do because it comes across as nagging. Um, but you need to remove those barriers as well and keep collaborating and see it as a as a journey. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a big takeaway here for me. Yeah, and, and around that, you know, our estate is our community and there's a collective call to action. And it's not our it's not our business's call to action. It's a collective one. And if we can help people start their own journeys around that, I think the more the better. And I mean, to add to that, I think organisations such as the BBP, the UK Green Building, so Better Buildings Partnership, the UK Green Building Councils, uh, Supply Chain Sustainability School, you know, there are so many, ED obviously as well, um, but you know, there are so many organisations who are helping to bring different stakeholder groups together on this. Um, so, you know, the BBP Climate Change Commitment requiring uh, large uh, property owners such as ourselves to set these commitments means that we're actually all on a very similar journey at a similar space in time, which means there's a lot of opportunity for us to not just collaborate with our value chain, but also collaborate with industry peers to help drive this action. Thanks once again to Andy for his time there. Um, definitely getting me looking forward to venturing back into London a little bit more. So if you're still following my vague structure or metaphor, we're just wrapping up our working day part of this podcast and are getting ready for a virtual wander over to a pub or a bar for a beverage that is, of course, sustainable. So join Matt and I after the jingle for discussions on net zero pubs, bars and beverages with experts from Heineken, Coca-Cola, Euro Pacific Partners and Pernod Ricard. Welcome back to part two of this episode of Sustainable Business Covered, the August 2021 edition, where we're having a virtual leisurely and sustainable working Friday in the city. After looking at the transition to climate positive homes and offices with Grosner in part one, we're now going to be looking at net zero bars, pubs and beverages. Matt, I'm going to let you do a bit of introduction for our next interviewee, who is Heineken's Global Head of Design, Mark Van Eterson, as I know this is a discussion you had. And I understand that the discussion um, either took place at or was about this new concept bar, the Greener Bar, which is at the Excel Centre um, for the London EPRI. Yeah, um, so you, you, I mean, you kind of done the intro for me there, but uh, yeah, as I, I was meant to be in London a couple of weeks ago. Um, Heineken are a sponsor of the uh, of the E series this this year. They're, they're a kind of key partner, and and 
both those organizations are keen to show off their sustainability credentials. The EPRI is, is quite obvious, it's all about electric vehicles, and Heineken's had a long track record of uh, of corporate sustainability. Um, so it was a good mix of organizations there that were trying to essentially um, promote sustainability. And the concept of a greener bar is a bar that is, is greener. It's uh, My understanding of it is it's more of a kind of a mobile, almost like a pop-up setting that you can put at, at almost like festivals or events like the EPRI, so when it shows up, you can convert or almost retrofit a space for, for the bar, and it's made from recycled materials, um, promotes sustainability, um, and and the like. It was meant to take place uh, face-to-face in London, um, but because of COVID and um, the required tests, and because I had to attend a wedding pretty much the next day, um, I asked myself if it could be a, uh, a virtual Teams-based interview just so I was able to go to uh, my, my friend's wedding and not have to worry about um, any potential scares there. So um, Heineken were really accommodating. They let me have uh, kind of 15 minutes of Mark to discuss what that greener bar is and uh, how they feel that will, you know, be receptive amongst the uh, an audience that you know and i am stereotyping and generalizing here probably isn't as interested in sustainability as as others if you imagine your your everyday pub going uh crowd in that sense so it was a it was a good discussion into what the bar is and how heineken are approaching sustainability and engagement in that sense and yeah so all good news matt's not a super spreader um we're having a wider climate conversation so let's play that interview with mark in full um as mentioned it is with matt and i'm sure you'll all be glad to have a little break from my voice for a while here's that interview in full so mark thank you so much for joining me today how are you thank you great pleasure Thanks, Matt. And we recently even added uh, to our my title sustainability, so design and sustainability. Well, that's um, ideal. <laughs> that's appropriate for this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Design and sustainability is exactly what I want to focus on for this uh, for this um, chat. So, uh, my, my understanding of, of this was is that ahead of the the 2021 uh, Heineken London EPRI, um, sorry, uh, Heineken is launching its first sustainable bar concept, which is dubbed the Greener Bar, and it's part of this. Your basically Heineken's role as a sustainability partner for um, for the, the latest uh, Formula E Championship. Um, obviously, in an ideal scenario, we would be able to have this interview, and I'd actually be at the bar, so I could see a bit about the concept and what it entails. But um, over over Teams, are you able to perhaps just uh, tell me um, a bit about the Greener Bar and why it's been introduced as part of this partnership? Yeah, of course. Um, there's um. Um, maybe to start with why at Formula E in London uh, now it's um, Formula E is 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 a platform for innovation eh? that's how more and more they position themselves um, innovation in the area of sustainability uh, electric driving is an important part of a sustainable future um, and we see it as a sort of perfect opportunity to trial and experiment our sustainable solutions um, for the future um, and that's why and, and London then of course well the timing was perfectly right um, this is sort of the moment that for the first time from a Heineken brand point of view we start to become more expressive and communicate to consumers what we do in the area of uh, sustainability we've been doing a lot over the past I think I should even say decades but we always had a sort of maybe it's a sort of Dutch modesty about it because, you know, this is an area where you're never perfect yet. And then we didn't want to shout too loud. And so, but now we have the feeling we've done so much and consumers really start asking for it. A business starts asking for it. So we should be more a bit more extrovert. Um, well, and then, of course, London is a sort of perfect place because it's such a hub of innovation and design and sports and media and everything always uh, there's a couple of these places in the world so we thought this is a perfect opportunity yeah. um yeah and it's it's a bar a bar is of course our our sort of natural habitat eh? that's where of course we are we brew beer but heineken became i think always one of the most iconic beer brands across the world because we are we, we never stuck to the beer itself um eh? what we really try to bring to people is the, the experience 
um, me as head of design, uh, design and sustainability, it's designing the experience of having a beer together, enjoying an event like the Ypres in London. And so how can we make that experience most sustainable, greener, as we say? And and so what specifically about <clears throat> a bar can be done to make it greener? What What's in this greener bar that, um, that is perhaps different from, from the norm in terms of improving sustainability? <laughs> How long do you have, Matt? <laughs> How long is your podcast? Now, it's it's every little detail. There's things uh, related to beer, like the dispense system, the draft system that uses minimal energy and water, the cooling, the fridges are developed together with Red Bull Racing to be as efficient as possible in their cooling capacity. But it's also more general stuff. Um, uh, for ballast uh, using soil that can be reused instead of water that after an event you throw down the drain basically um, apparel that's made out of um, old materials recycled upcycled uh, if you will um, so it's every detail from the flooring to the roof to the the, the wood we've been using um, where we tried to yeah, to, to find the most sustainable solution or at least to experiment. Um, uh, so we, we we see it as an experiment. We don't say this is perfect or this is the way every bar in the world should look like. But I think yeah, we we managed to, to find a whole lot of materials, design solutions, also some technical innovations um, to make it as sustainable as we can today. And um, you mentioned it's a, it's a kind of experiment, but what's the um, the I suppose the end destination for this? Is this is this something that you're hoping is is adopted or, or that you would yeah. roll out uh, um, yourself? Or what's the plan? No, definitely, it, it's an experiment, but it's real. Eh? I mean, it's there. It's not laboratory PR stuff. I mean, we made it. Um, I call it an experiment because sometimes we might run into a solution where we later think, ah, there is a better way of doing it or eh, whatever. Um, but that, and that's innovation, of course. Um, no, but it's. It, I mean, it's real. It's there. It's. It's actually quite easily uh, easy to replicate. It's. It's designed to travel, to travel um, in in the most sustainable manner. We're not going to fly it all over the world, but it's going to be trucked with DHL special trucks driving on renewable energy uh, within Europe. Huh? So because then the distances are small in other continents, we're replicating the exact same concept sometimes choosing different solutions because locally in the local context other materials might be reused or recycled better than in europe so that's one of the complexities of sustainability um that's for for formula e and then we're we'll quickly of course also apply this in formula one um, but in the end um, heineken is partner in I mean, we in head office always say there's every day somewhere in the world a Heineken event taking place, or at least an event where Heineken is an important partner. Um, I get it, it's even more than that. Um, we want to scale it up. We want to inspire also internally our colleagues in every single market to try to make our events, our event bars, our servings at all these events as green as we can. And again, sometimes there's local complexities that make th certain things not possible yet, um, uh, but that doesn't matter. As long as we progress, as long as we try, um, every little drop counts in that sense. <clears throat> and um, I mean, our, our um, ED's, you know, uh, publisher, Fabian House, you know, we host what well, we hosted um, in-person events before the uh, the pandemic. And it's been a, in the events sector, I mean, events in general, whether that's sports related, whether that is, um, and even hospitality, which, you know, bars um, in the UK, nightclubs, for example, are only just reopening now. It's been a really tough, you know, year yeah. and uh, year and a half for, for these sectors in particular. Um, and we're now seeing, uh, I suppose, a, a race between companies and events to get those that level of footfall back to pre-pandemic level. Levels. Um, do you feel that um, sustainability has a key role in, I suppose, creating a unique experience for, for customers and consumers, but also building a, a kind of a heightened level um, of trust and a different relationship that would get people coming back to those, whether they're venues or events? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question, actually. Um, 
I mean, of course, we we have close relationships with event organizers, and it's been it's been tough times for us as well. Of course, with all the lots of on-premise closed uh, events cancelled, uh, so we partner with them to try to well to get it back. Indeed, um, I think indeed this whole pandemic has increased the consciousness of people in general about health, about environment, about how we treat the planet, uh, how we treat society. Um, you know, and I'm a I'm a designer at heart. I'm trained as an industrial design engineer. I see it as an opportunity to innovate and create excitement. So in that sense, I'm happy that people become also more conscious about environmental sustainability. And then it's our task to to not make that a minus uh, proposition, but to make it at least as cool and fun and enjoyable as as it was. Uh, and even better, try to try to improve, try to add some fun to it and try to, you know, because the difficulty is people don't, beer is not a polluting category. Events, yes, it, it sometimes it leaves waste, but in the bigger scheme of things, it is relatively small in its carbon footprint and things like that. But it's very visible. It can help make people more aware to build consciousness to for example make people understand that simply recycling their pack empty packaging materials better than they did before um, uh, in daily life if you buy stuff from a supermarket or um, those are the big challenges for us so for me it is the and for for us as heineken it is the sort of great opportunity to really start innovating and try to develop greener solutions that are extremely enjoyable if you want a beer you want a beer you want to have fun with your friends you want to listen to the music and don't care about the planet but that at least then you can trust us that we took care of all that and then we ask you to bring back your cup or to put your cup in the right bin in order for us to to recycle it fully uh, and then we make sure that it's the um, it's the lowest footprint possible and um, you know, we've as a company committed to have our own operations completely carbon neutral in 2030. That's already nine years from now. Um, and 2040, the entire chain. Uh, so that includes all bars, beer being cooled at events, uh, being shipped to events, etc. Um, to have that whole chain carbon neutral. So it's simply now the moment to act and start doing it. And that's what this signals and, and events, because it's such a visible thing and it, the, the, the timing is right eh? because it starts reopening. There is excitement about it. Again, that's for us a great opportunity. And um, I think we've already, um, you, you touched on about making it fun. And if and even if the audience in particular aren't necessarily interested in it, they, they can kind of rest assured that you've done the right thing. And it, it was a question I was going to ask actually, and um, I realize I am, I am, you know, majorly stereotyping here as a journalist, it's a, it's a bad habit. But um, the having, you know, I, I spend a fair bit of time in pubs myself, and I wouldn't necessarily say that the uh, the the pub goers are necessarily uh, in tune with this kind of green movement. They're they're probably less concerned about it. And at the same time, sports fans, I know, I know, um, Formula E in particular is a, is a niche and it's inherently sustainable anyway. But sports fans are another um, <clears throat> area of society where perhaps uh, you know, saving the planet or being a little bit greener is, is isn't really considered a, a core principle. So, uh, are you uh, and Heineken going go into efforts to engage with the consumers, or is it more that you are kind of just choice editing? So, if they do have an interest, you can show them the answers, but you're you're kind of taking that responsibility out of their hands. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of both. You know, uh, we will take care to and, and make sure that our carbon foot carbon footprint will go to, go down to zero. Um, uh, we, we don't want to bother people with it and we don't want to sort of talk them into a problem that's hardly there. Um, but we, we also need, we need consumers as part of that full chain as well. So we also need to do a little bit of, as we call it, light education, um, uh, which, is, which is mostly how do you choose the, the greenness pack type, or indeed, what do you do with your empty cup at an event? What do you do with your empty packaging after you've had a beer with your friends in the garden? Um, and there are some things where we need to nudge behavior, behavior and try to create a bit of consciousness. What, one of the big things, I mean, it looks like a small thing, but one of the big things at the greener bar is reusable cups. 
Um, it's not a one-way throw-away cup. It's a durable cup that is being reused time after time. If you organize that well, it is the most sustainable solution. Again, not yet possible in every part of the world, but in London or in the Netherlands, or it is. Um, but that's, uh, then people shouldn't throw their cup on the floor and stamp on it, and uh, it ends up in the mud. Now, so that's a, a tiny little thing. So how can we nudge people's behavior in such a way that they bring it back to the deposit point or to the bar or whatever is the most convenient? Same is true. Um, if you if you if you buy bottles or cans for at home, a returnable bottle, so a bottle with a deposit that we clean and refill, is by far the most sustainable pack type. Um, and we're lucky, by the way, that in beer, that that re, that, that returnable bottle system in quite a number of countries still exists. Uh, it was sort of old-fashioned, but now we see it becomes very progressive and we see categories like shampoo or ice cream or orange juice or developing refillable packaging. Um, but it, it, it takes, we see that there's a bit of a hurdle in convenience uh, for consumers to, uh, to, to keep stick to their, to their empty bottle, to bring it back. And by the way, also for retailers or supermarkets, uh, they have that hassle. But in the end, it is an important thing I think we'll all have to do. E-commerce delivery might be helpful in this. And it's, by the way, good to know that if you go to a pub and order a draft beer, that is the most sustainable uh, beer anyway, eh, because that comes in a reusable big keg, and that's super efficient. Best if you walk or cycle to the pub, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but th 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 this takes a bit of education, um, and and that's um, yeah, that's a responsibility that we will take, and we will start explaining consumers uh, little steps. Uh, uh, what are the best choices you can make? Brilliant. Well, I'd, I'd look forward to see how how that kind of really pans out, and yeah. Um, frustrated that I uh, couldn't be there in person just to see the bar but um, I'm sure I'll have ample opportunities to, to see it as and when it kind of gets rolled out at other places but Mark um, thank you so much uh, for your time yeah I hope, I hope the, uh, the the demonstration event and the, uh, the 2021 season goes well. No that was a great pleasure thank you Matt and um, yeah now I hope we have a beer in real life uh, together sometime soon and cheers to that. Yeah that would be really nice that would be yeah hopefully not too long. Thanks, Matt, once again for interviewing Mark. And thanks again to Mark for sharing his insights on innovating for more sustainable events. Um, as you mentioned before this, Matt, I think that the EPRI is great because it strikes me as a good way to communicate sustainability and bust myths, proving that, you know, it can be fun and it can be fast and the technology is here. And as you say, it's a similar thing with bars, pubs and drinks, really. So even if you are interested in the sustainability conversation like we are, it's a good way to have that conversation and have that proof um, without anything that might be called dooming um, or preaching or anything else that could cause eco-anxiety, to be honest. Matt's nodding at me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I completely forgot we were on a, a team <laughs> chat then. Yeah, um, I suppose visuals doesn't really translate well the podcast, but yeah, no. I, I do agree. Um, the yeah, the the EPRI is interesting because yeah, like I said, it, it's it's also converting a crowd that I again, and as a, a person who a sports fan who falls into that crowd, probably isn't as um, interested in sustainability as a as a concept or or something I can act on compared to other crowds. So those two organisations really tapping into huge audience markets and potential to really ignite some some uh, key change there. So with that in mind, we're going to do a little bit of a virtual bar hop and we're heading from the Excel Centre in Newham to the Culpepper in Shoreditch. So I was at this bar virtually a few days ago for the launch of the Net Zero Pubs and Bars initiative spearheaded by Net Zero Now. So it's an initiative that has its own industry protocol and certification standard, helping these businesses to get to net zero before that 2050 legally required deadline, which really should only be, in my opinion, uh, deemed as ambitious for really hard to abate and high emitting businesses. I think that, um, yeah, smaller ones like pubs and bars included can lead the way. So the Net Zero Bars and Pubs initiative launched in late July, following a pilot that had been taking place before that at 36 locations, including Culpepper. Um, so crucially, this initiative involves the suppliers as well as in-house teams. And with that in mind, the next interview is with two of the biggest suppliers to these venues, 
Pono Ricard, who you probably know for its brands like Malibu, Absolute and Beefy to Gen, um, and Coca-Cola's largest European bottler, Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific Partners, or CSEP for short. I managed to sit down with CSEP's Head of Sustainability, Nick Brown, and Perno Ricard's UK's Commercial Director, Ian Pitt. Um, the term dynamic duo springs to mind when I think of the conversation we had. Um, it was great to hear a little more about the specifics of the scheme and the importance of collaboration in delivering true net zero and maximising the broader benefits. So let's play our third and final interview for this episode in full. Well, a very warm welcome to you both um, on the podcast, and I'm heavily disappointed that I can't be at the pub with you in London on this on this um, sunny afternoon. How are you both? Yeah, very good. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, excellent, Sarah, in the pub. It's, it's a bit warm, I must say, but it's good to be out in the on-trade again. Fantastic. Um, and great to be talking about net zero in a sector that's super engaging and we can all think about which is pubs, bars, beers and beverages. Um, I think it would be good just to recap, essentially. So this is a net zero now initiative. It takes in businesses from all across the sector and you guys as businesses are acting as development partners for this um, initiative. But I think it would be worth probably recapping sort of um, CSEP and Perno Ricard's approaches to climate in-house as well that have sort of laid the foundations for this collaboration. So, Nick, if I could start with you, um, I'd love to briefly recap um, on the partnership's climate approach, so its targets, and what changes there have been in, in the past year, I think, since we've had you on the podcast. Sure. So um, at CCEP, we manufacture and distribute a, a lot of brands that people will know. Um, last autumn, we launched a new set of um, climate targets, um, and that was basically in recognition of the fact that we needed to do more to update them to align them with the latest science. So the the three key elements of that was a an ambition to be net zero across our total value chain, so our scope one, two and three by 2040, a 250 million euro investment programme, uh, which kicks off now, which is to try and reduce our carbon impact by another 30% from what we've done over the last few years by 2030. And 90% of our carbon impact is in our scope three. Um, and that's an important context for the conversation we're going to go on to have about um, how we work with our customers. Uh, clearly, the majority of that is with our suppliers. So um, for our largest, most strategic suppliers, we've put in place a new set of requirements on them, basically, to set their own science based targets to support the RE100 programme and also to start sharing more specific data on the products and services that they sell to us so that we can um, understand what's working, where we need to do more. So we launched that last year. We're now working through um, how we bring that to life with all the different sectors of our business and developing country specific roadmaps um, for each of our territories to do that. And Ian, could I recap on what's going on in regard to emissions and net zero at Perno Ricard UK? Yeah, sure, Sarah. Um, yeah, I mean, for Perno Ricard, um, you know, being committed to the environment, being sustainable is, is quite deep rooted in our DNA. I mean, some of our brands have been uh, around for over 200 years. Um, we're essentially, you know, we rely on an agricultural base to, to, to make our products. So it's sort of, you know, certainly within our own interest to kind of make sure that uh, in 200 years time or a thousand years time, you know, the, the means to make our products are, are still there in the market. So uh, it has been a focus for us for a long time. Uh, certainly um, going back to last year, we launched our uh, sustainability and responsibility strategy, which we call Good Times um, from a Good Place. Um, and that's got a, a roadmap to 2030 for us, um, which is centered around four pillars. So firstly is maturing terroir to kind of make sure um, we're doing things the right way in terms of, of making things and our partners making things. We've got circular making, valuing our people, and responsible hosting. So we have four main pillars. It's, it's the forefront of the, of the company strategy, um, and we're all engaged around that. Um, probably also what's changed with it within the uh, kind of last 12 months or so is actually uh, externalizing our ambitions as well. So that's an in internal um, strategy we've got. Um, but obviously, what we were talking about today, uh, we're talking about today is in net zero pubs and bars. 
uh, initiative that uh, we're doing in partnership with with Coca-Cola and Nick's representing there and the Sustainable Restaurant Association and, and Net Zero Now. And that's actually kind of realising exactly what Nick said is 90% again of our emissions are in, in sector three and working with our partners, you know, mainly upstream in the supply chain, but very importantly downstream. And it's becoming really important for them and they're very engaged around this um, uh, this topic as well. And so, you know, what can we do to support our customers in helping them on their journey as well? Great. And Ian, I'd like to come on to that question, really. So what can you do as a drink supplier to support this kind of customer? So bars and pubs um, to reach net zero, because obviously this initiative is being piloted um, in bars and pubs, but you guys are ultimately the development partners. So clearly it's really important to tackle that scope three and to go for that collaborative approach. Yes, and uh, you know I, I'm here as uh, the kind of commercial director of Pernod Ricard. I, I'm not an environmental uh, expert, but I, I'm here because it is becoming more and more part of our commercial com conversation with with our partners in the on trade. And um, you know, I think through the research we got, you know, over 80% of um, our customers are saying that they understand how important that environmental issues are, and they want to do something about it. The, the, the challenge they've got, apart from the other challenges the sector's facing at the moment, is they don't know what to do. You know, they, they, they haven't got uh, the means of calculating where they currently are and they haven't got the, the tools in place to then actually put an action plan in to get uh, a plan towards that net zero uh, place where that we, we want all of our businesses to be. So essentially that, was, that is what we put together. Uh, with the partners in terms of the net zero pubs and bars initiative is actually just making it more simple more easy more clear for uh, our partners in the on trade uh, to realize where they are and work towards um, the goal of getting to net zero and i wanted to ask on that as well so for, so for example how that collaboration will work so you've mentioned there your climate targets but what would happen for example if a bar or a pub that stocks you or products maybe had a, a sooner deadline maybe they thought they could go for um you know a 2025 but they they stock a coca-cola or a or a perno ricard well i can start with that one sarah so at ccp we've nearly half the carbon impacts of the products we sell over the last decade will be reducing it by another 30 percent this decade uh, and we we plan to be net zero by 2040 so i think everyone's on that journey and we'll keep um decarbonizing the products and services that we sell um and we know that customers will want to work on the things they control so for us the elements that the customers control in, in pubs and, and restaurants and bars that have an impact on our carbon impact are how the product gets to them, how is it delivered, what's the route to market, um, what equipment do they use, do they use fridges and coolers or dispensers, um, what uh, what um, what do they do with the packaging when it's finished. So all those elements have a have a real direct impact on our carbon impact as a as an organization so we'll particularly be wanting to make sure that outlets understand those that what they can do in those areas but we need to do that in the context of a net zero movement altogether we we can't be having a separate conversation about soft drinks from alcoholic drinks from from food suppliers we need a, a joint program so that's why we're really happy to be collaborating to make this program as big as it possibly can be to bring as many people in as possible so that we can all move more quickly uh, towards those net zero commitments that we all have to set for our own organizations. Ian I don't know if you had anything to add there so at the panel today there was a lot said about um, when can we move and how a lot of pubs saying that you know in the next six to twelve months I could only really do things that are cost neutral or would would reduce costs um is essentially so what's your view on this sort of this sort of timeline question yeah um yeah i mean that, that's quite a difficult uh question to give a holistic answer to because you know the the on trade has got uh, you know there's over a hundred thousand outlets uh in in the uk that have, have got a license so you're talking a very broad brush of um big businesses small businesses you know hotels restaurants uh, pubs bars uh, nightclubs so, and they're all in in obviously because of the pandemic in slightly different places um however you know as we talked about this morning you know we we found 30 bars that went through the pilot study with 
with us. We've learned a lot from that, engaging with them um, to kind of fine tune uh, what we can put out into a wider audience, um, you know, for, from from uh, today onwards. Um, the cost is quite, uh, uh, it's definitely uh, one of the, the interesting things that's come out of the study, because I think there is this preconception that if I'm moving my um, pub or bar um, to on that sort of carbon uh, neutral or net zero basis what uh, it will cost me a fortune and, and I won't be able to pass it on but actually I think the the overall cost per cover i.e cost per customer that came in there was a range um, from about one to seven p something in, in you know per cover so you know and an average out at five p so again it is a cost but it seems to be a manageable cost in the context of, of everything else. That that would be, be the first thing. And certainly also, you know, when, when um, uh, pub and bar operators engage in this, there's, there's certain in initiatives that you can do now that actually either don't cost any money at all, but or actually save you money. I mean, it, energy is, is the prime example of that. So, you know, switching to um, uh, different light bulbs, making sure equipment is turned off overnight. You know, there's lots of fridges in, in pubs, so you don't need to be chilling product overnight because people aren't you know, consuming until lunchtime. Um, you know, turning uh, down the notch on your thermostat just a couple of degrees. So there's lots of very simple things that, that, that people can implement, which will actually save them money uh, in the longer term, including switching to renewable energy suppliers. So those are some of the kind of nuggets that we've already uh, found uh, through the trial period. And Sarah, I think it's worth laying out the structure of the toolkit because there's a lot of work gone into that. So the, the first bit of feedback that we got from many customers was actually they wanted some help on understanding their carbon impact and measuring it. So the first part of the toolkit and the protocol is all about how to measure and understand um, your your impact. And it's it's not in a very academic way it's a very tangible way for the for the operators in in that channel the second one is how do you set your targets and and what should you be aiming for and and when and and the third element is identifying all the plans that you might need to put in place to to do that and then the the final element is about certification if you want to get as far as um actually reducing your impact and offsetting um what's left a certification program for doing that and we understand that different customers in the channel are going to want to move through that journey at very different paces so the the toolkit is a is one that will allow them to do that at their own pace great and i'd say that aside from this pace question and the cost question the other major theme that came up during the talks at the launch event um, was about influence and, and engagement. So pubs will have big teams of staff, huge amounts of customers and links to other local businesses um, as as well. And I know that Perno Ricard and CCEP will both have consumer engagement campaigns. So they'll have communications, on-pack messaging, um, and as you mentioned, that all-important supply chain engagement um, as, as well. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on how pubs and bars can best do engagement on Net Zero with, with customers. Uh, so I go first, Nick. I mean, I think, um, you know, actually, if, you, if you're going to do all of these things, um, you know, you've got to talk to consumers about it because uh, they do want to hear about it. I mean, 83% of consumers that we talk to expect um you know, uh, food and drink manufacturers and uh, on-trade venues to be engaging in this topic because it, it's it's very important to them. So people do want to hear about what uh, outlets are doing. Uh, they do have a, a huge opportunity at most outlets in terms of they've already got a social media presence. Um, most most of the outlets have had to increase that over the last uh, 12 to 15 months and, and you know they've got now digital apps so people can order from tables and outside and all of those things so they probably have more um, uh, platforms than ever to, to to spread spread the word also uh, quite interestingly on the talk that we had earlier on uh, Hamish from Peach Pubs was talking about also uh, empowering his staff and, and getting his staff to talk to his consumers when they were at the table and what is appropriate um, conversations to have and, and when you have them because they don't, you don't want to come across as preachy or uh, you know as evangelist on this thing because that's 
potentially what some people don't want to hear when you know when 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 they're on their night out so it is about getting that balance in communication of telling people and educating people but also um not coming across too too hard and too preachy so um but yeah i i think it, you know in the round uh, consumers definitely want to hear what uh, what businesses are doing um, and being very transparent about it great and nick i don't know if you had anything to add on that one only I was struck by talking to Hamish on the on the panel today from Peach Pubs about just how empowered they feel with the information and the data to find the right way of doing that. They feel that they understand their clients, they understand what they've come out for. Um, he was very clear that they could really flex that messaging based on what time of day, what type of outlet, what type of client. And um, we don't want to turn all pubs into classrooms on the issues of climate change, but we do want to get across some some clear and simple messages. And I think the concept of net zero and net zero now and the concept of some kind of certification is a really simple and engaging way of um, of getting that across to, to clients without having to, to, to go into a lot of detail, which will be there behind the scenes if they want to get into that. I think also just to add to that, one of the interesting thing um, in hospitality industry that is is facing a bit of a staff shortage and a bit of a staff sh um, crisis in, in getting people to work in hospitality, how important it is uh, in attracting and retaining staff to actually have um, environmental and sustainable credentials. Um, and Hamish, again, from Peach was talking about, you know, that is they, they, they need to engage their staff and their staff want to feel they're working for an organisation that is getting on the front foot uh, with these kind of initiatives. And, uh, you know, it's a competitive marketplace out there for staff at the moment. And uh, again, it's another reason for why uh, the hospitality sector should engage in initiatives such as we're talking about now. Great. Well, I would love to stay and chat all afternoon and would be even more keen to do so if we were all in person um, with a pint at the pub. Um, but for this podcast, that's all we have time for. So thank you so much for all your insight on this initiative. Thank you, Thanks, Sarah. Sarah. Thank you to Nick and Ian for taking the time. And I'm excited to see which bars, pubs and other businesses are joining that initiative in the months that follow. Um, quick note here. So shortly after I recorded this, Nick actually posted on his LinkedIn that he is leaving um, CSEP soon. So, Nick, if you're listening back, I know a lot of our speakers often do. Um, best of luck in your next adventure and looking forward to hearing some more about what that entails. Nick and Ian were our last interviewees for this episode. So, Matt, I think it's time to properly kick back with a with a drink now. Um, not strictly professional, but have you got anything nice planned for the weekend? Um, yes, actually, it's a, it's a friend's birthday. So we're going to go play uh, some golf in the day. Uh, and then yeah a few drinks um, mainly at his but we might we might head to a bar or two in the night um, and I'm showing my age now but I, I want to keep working on the garden it's, uh, it's undergoing <laughs> quite the uh, um, change right now from basically a scene from Jumanji to something that's actually vaguely nice to sit in so that's kind of uh, kind of my plans for the weekend. Fantastic. I've got birthday as well. I think I don't know for August for everyone seems to be a bit expensive. Lots of birthdays, um, yeah, lots, lots of holidays, lots of holidays, lots of birthdays, lots of weddings. Just people have kind of penciled in this month as like we will do stuff because we can do stuff. So exactly. But um, we won't be relaxing and socialising for too long. Um, as we mentioned at the start of this episode, we are busy preparing for the next parts of our countdown to COP26 festival. Save the date because we have an event happening on the afternoon of the 9th of September, all about nature based solutions and climate adaptation. Um, it's all virtual. So we've got three back to back webinar sessions chaired by myself and by Edie's ever elusive content director, Luke Nichols. Um, I can't give away too much about our speakers at this stage, but I can confirm that we have some great sponsors on board. So expect to hear from Grosner again, as well as from EY, the Woodland Trust and festival headline sponsor O2. So watch this space. And in the meantime, you can find out more and register at ed.net slash webinars. That's ed.net slash webinars. Once again, that's for the 9th of September. And that actually takes place during a dedicated COP26 focus week. So expect plenty more exciting exclusives around that event. But for now, that's all from us for today. 
Our next podcast episode in a couple of weeks will be a net zero business episode featuring one of the UK's major supermarkets. So watch this space and I'll see you there. Until then, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.